You are Locked On NFL, your daily NFL podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Hello, football fans, and welcome on into another episode of the Locked On NFL podcast. I'm Jake Lisko, along with Ryan Tracy. For your Thursday episode of the show, we've got some crazy pro day numbers from some freak athletes in Florida and at LSU today to talk about a 17th game added to the schedule, which is kind of weird, Ryan. How about 12 and 5 for a record or 8, 8 and 1, I guess is the only way to get to 500 anymore. You're either going to be a losing team or a winning team most years. You know, I should get that right, right about, I don't know, 2030 or so and not have to correct myself every time. It's going to be really strange, right? You're going to have a 17 and 0 team one of these years instead of a 16 and 0 team. And the whole change is one less preseason game, which I think everybody's happy about. And one more regular season game. And I guess in alternating years, teams will have more home games than away games. So if you're a fan of a team that gets one more away game this year, I'm sorry for your luck. If you're a fan of a team that gets one more home game this year, congratulations. Instead of a fake home game in the preseason, you get a real home game in the regular season this year. So I hope everybody gets to enjoy that for those of you that have plans to go down to a football stadium this year. We're also going to cover in this episode some interesting advancements in wide receiver breakout age research that I've read about in the past couple days that I find conversation worthy and a little bit of conversation that we need to have around these crazy times we're seeing, which is where we're starting the show and where we're going to continue the conversation as well, because the combine isn't happening this year. So all of these numbers may need to be taken with a grain of salt. And speaking of these numbers, let's start at LSU, Ryan, where Jamar Chase and Terrace Marshall tested like 99th plus percentile athletes. And I know you've got your own athletic matrix. You come up with your own scores for these guys. I thought this would be a great opportunity for you to talk a little bit about what goes into that and how these guys came out in your formula. Yeah, and it's it's really interesting. I think kudos to Terrace Marshall for flying under the radar this whole time and having very, very similar numbers in terms of straight line speed. I think they came out even with the same 10 split, at least as it's been reported to this point, a little bit more upper body strength out of Jamar Chase. But uh, I think the leaps are where things change, especially the power generated in the broad jump. But this is a wide receiver that I think flies under the radar, not just on his own team, but across all of draft Twitter in particular. But I do think that he is the guy that's going to push for the bottom end of the first round and Kudos to Terrace Marshall. I think Jamar Chase delivered on everything expected, but I think Marshall probably proved a few folks wrong and got himself a few extra bucks here. I think he most likely did. I think he certainly solidified himself as that back end of the first round receiver, if if not middle of the first round, potentially. I think he's in that conversation now because he was productive too. He's played in the slot. He can play outside. He did both. They moved him into the slot a little bit more in 2020 down there at LSU, which is where... They put Justin Jefferson when he was so productive before he had an incredible rookie year for the Minnesota Vikings. So he has played both of those roles for the LSU Tigers and has an opportunity to reprise that in the NFL. I think that he's one of five guys, Ryan, that at this point I feel really good about going in the first round at wide receiver with the two Alabama kids and Waddle and Smith 
with Jamar Chase, of course, who I think actually ran faster than a lot of people expected him to. I think there was a big expectation that the power would be there. And I think there's a recording of him doing 23 bench press reps the day before his pro day. And the jumps were really good. But along with those guys and Rashad Bateman, I think Terrace Marshall is certainly in the conversation for the first round at this point. And maybe another team takes a swing on Rondale Moore with his freaky athleticism that we talked about last week going for that outlier at 5'7". But all these guys tested extremely well, have generally good production profiles. We'll talk a little bit about what some of those things that some teams might be looking at later in the episode, but really impressive testing at LSU. Yeah, across the board, I thought it was very positive. And Terrace Marshall is one of few, uh, especially the top tier quarterbacks that didn't run the agilities. You had a good point. I hope that he rides his teammates' coattails because one of my biggest disappointments of the day is Jabril Cox, the linebacker, did not run, had a hamstring. But he did say that they are likely to put together another workout so he can go through the full gamut of testing again. Maybe that will give Marshall a little opportunity to gather and do the agilities. If he so chooses, it could also be a thing where he knows he's not going to run him very well. So he's going to go run the drills that he knows he's good at. And he's not going to put out there any testing numbers that solidify any impressions or, or concerns that teams might have about their the agility of the prospect, which I'm sure is coming largely from tape. There's also a, a safety. I know that you were watching the tested really well at LSU today. Yeah, kudos to Jacoby Stevens for for stepping up. Like, actually, I've tested what I expected from him, and I like him on tape. Um, he noted that a lot of teams are talking to him about playing like a nipple nickel linebacker role. Um, I do think that he is more of a, a straight safety. But again, another good day out, another show of athleticism there. And you know, I, for Marshall, you know, if he chooses not to run those ever. Uh, that also sends a, a pretty good message to the teams as well. So I, I think it's much better on the wide receiver than it is on like the cornerback group where I think there's been like four people that have actually run the agilities this year. So, hey, the wide receivers are doing pretty good. Yeah, the, and two of the top prospects too. I think, we, I think we've discussed that on our Thursday episode of the show before. J.C. Horn and Patrick Sertain, neither of them have, have done the agility testing. Let's go to Florida. One last guy that I think everybody's excited to talk about at the top of the draft. And I really wonder where he ends up at this point. I think he could go as high as four to Atlanta, as low as maybe seven. What would I don't know. Detroit's not going to do it again. I don't know where his floor is, but Kyle Pitts finishes with a 4-4-4 40-yard dash at 6'5", 245, record-setting wingspan, Pretty good agility testing for a tight end, a 4-3 shuttle, a 7-1-2-3 cone, a really good broad of, of 10 feet, 9 inches, and actually a surprisingly average to average plus vert, 33 and a half inches. Of all the things that I thought he might struggle with, a vertical jump wasn't the one that I expected would come out closer to average than anything else for Kyle Pitts. Yeah, I, I agree with you there. That was a little bit surprising compared to the rest of his testing, but that 4-4-4. Four, 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 at 245 is he's fast on film, but that even actually was less than I expected. I was looking for like a 449 or something, just barely under that 45 barrier. So kudos to him. A nice get off in the 10 split as well uh, at 155. Get out of the box and get into that route. I, I mean, I think that says actually quite a bit about how he plays on the field as well is that initial stem. More power to him. I mean, you could line him at, at wide receiver right now. 
and those giant hands and long arms in those jump ball situations will certainly be in his benefit. I think hand size is, is something that gets made fun of a lot for quarterbacks, but I think it actually does matter for wide receivers and, and pass catchers, tight ends, obviously, as well. When you have those 10 plus inch hands, I think Odell Beckham fits this category too. Those spectacular catches show up more often on tape. And when you have the smaller hands, I think you start to see some some more drop issues at times or at least more restrictions with the hands. And so it'll be fun to see how that plays out for Kyle Pitts at the next level, wherever he ends up. But maybe these numbers are a little inflated, Ryan. Let's talk about that a little bit coming up next. The chain stores have different price tiers for professional mechanics versus us do-it-yourselfers, but rockauto.com's prices are the same for everybody, and they're reliably low. rockauto.com always offers the lowest prices possible rather than changing their prices based on whims like the airlines do. rockauto.com is for everybody and does not require a membership or an account login. rockauto.com is a family business serving auto parts customers online for 20 years. Go to rockauto.com to shop for auto and body parts from hundreds of manufacturers. The rockauto.com catalog is unique and remarkably easy to navigate. Quickly see all the parts available for your vehicle and choose brands, specifications, and prices you prefer. Best of all, prices at rockauto.com are always reliably low and the same for professionals and do-it-yourselfers. Why spend twice the money for the same parts? Go to rockauto.com now to see all the parts available for your car or truck. Write locked on in their how-did-you-hear-about-us box so they know that we sent you. Amazing selection, reliably low prices, all the parts your car will ever need. RockAuto.com. The built bar bracket is down to the final. Cookie dough chunk against the winner of mint brownie and coconut brownie chunk. My personal favorite, coconut brownie chunk in the fantastic, flavorful four, trying to make its way into the final. That's the one that I would encourage you to vote for. Hopefully, they win as we're recording this on Wednesday. But go over to BuiltBar.com. Check out all their great flavors. You'll see them in the Built Bar bracket. You can browse them for yourself. All of the protein bars at BuiltBar.com are high in protein, low in sugar, covered in 100% real chocolate. They're even high fiber and low fat. And we've got a discount code for you. So when you go over to vote at BuiltBar.com for Coconut Brownie Chunk, you can use promo code LOCKED15. You're going to get 15% off your next order. That's 15% off with promo code LOCKED15 at BuiltBar.com. It's time for the Built Bar Bracket Final. Cookie Dough Chunk coming out of the left side of the bracket will take on the winner of Mint Brownie and Coconut Brownie Chunk. My personal favorite, Coconut Brownie Chunk, making a push here for the final. And you can go vote in that contest on BuiltBar.com. While you're there, check out the amazing flavors they've got available to you that have been going throughout this tournament. They all taste great. They're all high in protein. They're all low in sugar. They're all covered in 100% real chocolate. They've got a flavor for you. We've got a discount code for you. You can use promo code LOCKED15. You'll get 15% off your next order at BuiltBar.com. So go to BuiltBar.com right now. Check out the selection. Make sure you vote for Coconut Brownie Chunk. And remember, use that promo code LOCKED15 and you'll get 15% off your next order. When we talk about getting ready for this draft and all the testing that's going on at these pro days, I find that the hype's a little bit more than it usually is because there is no combine. And the difference between running at home on your own track or your own field that you practice on every day, I think that does give a little bit, if nothing else, than a, a mental edge to being a little bit more relaxed when you go out to perform and those kind of things. 
But there is a significant difference, one that has been documented over the years, between what a combine timing system is and what a pro day generally is. And there is obviously variation. Does that bother you? Does it bother me? I mean, we can still go back and look at pro day numbers for a lot of guys because a lot of guys do run at both the combine and at pro days. What makes it a little challenging is that for me, some of the tools that I personally use, Ryan, like mockdraftable.com, the, the spider chart kind of thing, or Pro Football Reference has a database where you can search against combine participants and their testing results in the past. Uh, I, I saw somebody today, there was a tweet about Jamar Chase's testing numbers, for example, and it was a list of all the players that hit certain 40-yard dash benchmarks and weight and jump benchmarks and all this stuff. The only other player that had done it with a significant caveat at the combine was DK Metcalf. And I really wonder what that looks like if you open it up to pro day testing too. So for me as a, as a football fan and content creator, the impact for me is it makes it much harder for me to do the comparative work that I like to do. But I know for you with your, your athletic matrix, you're more looking at the individual player. So how does your athletic matrix, I'm just curious, affect or, or account for uh, the, the pro days versus the combines? Do you have something baked in or, or do you just kind of use the numbers for what they are? I don't have anything baked in. When I have to shift it over, I do because you can generally, at least on a per test basis, have that little bit of conversion rate that I will use, especially if you get, say, a mixed workout where somebody does the leaps at the combine and then pulls something and has to come back and run their 40s. Now you're getting kind of a mixed bag in terms of controlled testing environment and that kind of thing. So I do use it for that. But the big thing about the matrix, mock draftable is great. Kent's work over at uh, the relative system. Raz is great. It's, it's great at seeing how a particular output from a player stacks up against others. But what the matrix does is take it a step farther because for me, it's about functionalism and what you do on the field. And that is always a combination of movements. Nobody's running out of a, a track stance on a 40 yard dash down the field. That's one of honestly the problems that they're going to have to, to deal with when you talk about max uh, speed, when you get the GPS numbers, right? There's a push now to move the analytical side to the GPS and that's perfectly fine, but you'll find that most people are not going to get a standardized set of how far they're running to get to that max speed. You know, Tyreek Hill might get there in 22 yards, might take someone else 38. You know, the combination there, the standardization is the problem when it comes to those kind of things. And so what I do is combine what, say, a defensive end has to do. He doesn't just have to run a three-cone standing up. He has to fight through bodies. He has to maybe change his stance. He might have to plant, come inside in much more of a like a shuttle cut that you'll see in the 5-10-5 than you do in the three-cone. So there are different combinations that the formulas put together to simulate what they do on the field. And I think that's where it comes down to. And so even though Jamar Chase might be right there with DK, when you put some of those things together and you see how they function on the field, it does have a tendency to differentiate players in what they do functionally on the field. I think that's really intriguing. And for teams, I think it's really intriguing to, to see what the difference is between the pro day numbers and the combine numbers. This is going to be a year with an asterisk for a lot of reasons, but I think this is going to be a bigger one when we come back to a centralized combine again. The NFL desperately, desperately needs a combine. Like, Every year around the combine time, I feel like there's this narrative on Twitter, especially from the film diehards, the people that are like, film is all I care about. 
in my draft mm-hmm. evaluation. The testing doesn't matter to me at all. And if you're one of those people, more power to you. But every time the combine rolls around, it's the combine doesn't matter. I don't care if they run a 4-4 because he plays slow or whatever. I mean, you, you hear some of that with Jamar Chase right now. Mm-hmm. Is he slow on tape? You know, Ben Albright today was, he doesn't run a 4-3-8. There's no way. He, he, he runs a 4-4-5 on, ta- on tape. I'm like, how do you differentiate? I mean, I guess you can if you watch a lot of football. A 4-4-5 from a 4-3-8 or a 4-4, depending on the stopwatch. The, the difference is just so small. But, you know, some people did nail it for, for Justin Fields. They saw him chase down Trey Sermon, and, and I think it was uh, KP, Kyle. He's like, he, that's what a 4 4 5 40 looks like. And then he goes out and runs a 4 4 5. So I know you can see speed on tape. That's not the point I'm trying to make here. The point is, is that the standardized testing environment put everybody on the equal playing field. That's what we always talk about when we're looking at combine numbers. And everyone's under the stress of the late night interviews and of doctors poking and prodding and all of the eyes and, and media uh, obligations they have in Indianapolis. The NFL needs that. I 100% agree with you. And they will get the most important piece of information that comes out of the combine if you ask NFL teams what matters. And that's the medical stuff. At least for, according to Tom Pelissero, players that are projected to be drafted in the top three rounds, they will be going to Indianapolis to get the medicals done. And I have to imagine that for teams, that is an immense relief where there are a lot of question marks for some of these guys. There are there are a lot of big time players, uh, you know, first round type talents on film that need to have those medicals cleared, not only because they don't have the testing, but because there are serious implications about spending that kind of draft capital on, say, a Landon Dickerson, who on film should be the first center off the board. But if you're a team that has to invest that pick, especially if it's a late round first round pick and you might have other fish to fry. I use that term a lot. I have to get away from that. But that's more of a risk, I think, if you don't get the medicals cleared. If he ends up being a guy that can't play as a rookie, okay, that's one thing. If he ends up being a guy that is continually hurt through the first contract of his career, that's a much bigger issue to use a first-round pick on. Absolutely. Guys like Landon Dickerson, that's a great example. I think Rondale Moore, who we just talked about, who, who tested great. The medicals will be very important for him. I think it is a shame that there will be some guys that are kind of on the fringe that won't get to go to Indianapolis where teams are just going to be guessing. And I think those are the guys that are really going to be hurt in this process without having the combine, without getting the 250 plus players that you usually get in Indy, only getting the 150 in for medicals, I think will be a detriment, but the teams are going to all the pro days. They're, they're gathering all the information they can. They're maximizing the Zoom time. And at least, I guess, the, the teams are familiar with the Zoom stuff from last year. They did get a combine, but at least they learned the technology. And I've talked to some coaches around the league that, you know, they do lament the fact that they can't go out to dinner with a guy and get to know them better. But at least, you know, if you get multiple Zoom conversations with some of these players, they can get to know the personalities a little bit. And that is something that I think a lot of coaches are expecting will be part of the process, not the entire process, but part of the process going forward. Yeah, and I think it's important. You get those little 
um, details, those little kind of, not necessarily slips, but you get a relaxation factor when you've been in the room with a guy a couple of times, mm -hmm. whether it's 15 minutes in a speed interview, or if you get a dinner or something like that, it's a lot harder on zoom. So I, I mean, I would actually tell coaches don't spend 20 minute or half hour, even though I think it's, what is it? Five, one hour sessions they can have with a prospect. Yeah. Don't spend all that time. Do 10 minutes and call them back tomorrow. You know what I mean? Like break down those barriers of comfort so that you can get some actual breakthrough and try to pick up some of those nuggets. I think it's a really underrated part of this process right now. Which which coaches do you think are out there calling up prospects being like, hey, go go get some delivery from your favorite restaurant. Let's have dinner. Which coach in the NFL do you think is having dinner dates with their the, their prospects on Zoom? I don't know. Tom Cable seems like a guy that's probably doing that somewhere. <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, those kind of coaches just like, I don't want to talk ball. Let's sit down and have a couple of beers and then we'll get to it. I was thinking maybe Pete Carroll. Pete Carroll's always doing weird stuff around the draft, man. Well, and Bruce Arians might just be handing out tattoo templates. You know what I mean? <laughs> uh, I liked Tom Brady's rebuttal. The the tattoo on on I think it was his leg or was it his arm <laughs> of Bruce Arians? That that was a nice little. Tom Brady's really good at social media, man. I guess the guy's just good at everything. He's got to have a pretty good graphic artist working for him. I'm pretty sure. I'm sure he does, and and why not? Coming up next, we're going to talk a little bit about breakout age for wide receivers and its predictive value. This isn't something that I I think many people are terribly savvy to. So Ryan, you get to tell me if you think. It's, it's a crock, or if you think there's something here. <laughs> we'll have some fun talking about that coming up next. Bet online is the fastest and easiest way to bet on all your sports action. Football might be over, but the NBA, college basketball, and NHL are going to be back in full swing, and Bet Online even covers award shows, reality TV, all kinds of stuff. Real-time updated odds and props on almost anything you can imagine. Bet Online has you covered for all the news, scores, and odds. It's the best way to place your bets, and it's free to sign up. Head over to the website to sign up today and receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. The promo code's locked on for Bet Online, your online sportsbook experts. Ryan, we've talked a lot about athletic testing. I think we've appealed to the jocks enough. It's time to talk to the nerds and get into some of the interesting analytics out there that are used to project wide receivers. Some people I know outright dismiss the idea of breakout age and dominator ranking and all of that stuff, dominator rating. But there's some really interesting research around this that has been improved upon. So let's talk about the basic concept first. There's this idea of dominator rating. You can find out about it at playerprofiler.com. And dominator rating takes a percentage of the wide receiver's total team receiving yards and receiving touchdowns in college. And... They, they stack it against the competitors. Generally speaking, anything over 45%, according to playerprofiler.com, is considered extraordinary. Okay, so Rashad Bateman, for example, and he's going to be my example for a lot of this conversation, <laughs> came in at a 43.7% college dominator rating, which is 88th percentile. So really good stuff there. Now, this is interrelated to breakout age because breakout age is the age when a wide receiver first achieves a dominator rating of 20 plus percent. So when that wide receiver becomes 20 plus percent of his team's passing offense, that's considered a breakout year. Rashad Bateman had a breakout age of 18.8 .8 years old, 
which is in the 95th percentile. Wide receivers who break out before the age of 19 are generally considered phenoms. So these two numbers together have shown historically a lot of predictive power in saying if they hit these marks, or rather if they don't hit these marks, they're not as likely to be as successful in the NFL, which leads you to look at guys like Dwayne Eskridge, who had a long, a long college career, who started older at Western Michigan, who's coming out older and really throws some doubt onto those numbers. And historically, there's good reason for that. And that's that's the basis of all this stuff is looking at historical trends. So that's the basics on its face. Ryan, what is your first impression? I, I like the concept. I do feel that if you're ready to step onto the college field and you are able to take that kind of target share, more power to you. I would question whether it is just a parallel or if it really have a functional uh, effect on how well you do once you get to the NFL level because there is a whole lot of ground to cover between breaking out, especially at, what, 18.6, so freshman year, going through at least two more seasons, right? We don't see redshirt sophomores make it out very often, get onto an NFL field. And uh, the level of competition, I would also say, I think is very, very important. Not just like whether you play in the SEC or you play in the MAC or something like that, but also what is the quality of the defensive you're playing against, especially if you're a wide receiver. Now, if you're a tight end, I think you do have a bit more of an advantage. I don't know if tight ends are included in this or not, though. They are. Kyle Pitts tested or, or comes out amazing on this scale. So, the, the thing with this is, is it's not incredibly telling. It, it doesn't have massive predictive power. It's kind of something that for me is, is one of the elements that I put into my wide receiver and tight end evaluations. It, it's one of the things that gets mixed in at a, at a lower uh, impact level than, than the tape grade and the testing. I think those are, are still more important. For, for me and certainly for NFL teams, but a lot of NFL teams do use stuff like this. If you go look at the trends of the kinds of players they draft, and I only know this because the Cincinnati Bengals have a very strong tendency to draft wide receivers that meet certain thresholds for breakout age. And, and I guess dominator rating probably wouldn't be what they use, but it would be like productivity score or, or market share, that kind of thing. Now, What's really interesting about this to me is a couple of people have taken it a step further in, in the last couple of weeks. One of them is Joel Smith at FF underscore Smith on Twitter. And he suggests that you just need to make raw adjustments to breakout age, depending on the school the player went to, to try to adjust for guys like Jalen Waddle and Devonte Smith, who just couldn't get on the field because there were legitimately three NFL wide receivers ahead of them for, for a couple of years at Alabama. So, for these tier one schools, which he classifies as Alabama, Ohio State, LSU, Clemson, and Oklahoma, he suggests taking a full year off of their breakout age. For tier two schools, which is Georgia, Penn State, Auburn, Florida, USC, and Notre Dame, he says take a half year off. And then for power five schools, Cincinnati, Houston, UCF, and Memphis, leave it alone, leave it at zero. For non-power five schools, you actually add half a year because they had less barriers to get onto the field. And for non-FBS, he actually says add a full year. So kind of the similar thought there. So that's one approach. And he found that when you make those adjustments, the hit rate for players that met the threshold improved. It was more predictive. What do you think about that approach? I think that that 
may need some some refinement personally because it's just saying these are the schools that are good and these are the schools that don't have as much talent. But I thought it was interesting that it was more predictive when he went historically and, and applied those adjustments to the ages. I do find that interesting as well. I would also venture to argue that those top tier schools have top tier quarterbacks that deliver in a ball that allows you to get yak, to get the numbers that you're basing the analysis of how a wide receiver performs. You know, that's all an advantage. There's reasons top tier talent goes to top tier schools. But I will also say this that if it's corollary and you're looking at it from uh, a backward perspective, my question becomes there are always outliers how many outliers feed into that that we're not accounting for how predictive is it in the mean versus you know x y or z player at you know a tier two school yeah absolutely i I think that's a really good question about this in general and that's why i mean there's always outliers and this year i think you're going to see a lot of outliers drafted because of a COVID and and b there's a lot of just physical outliers with this wide receiver class generally being five nine or shorter uh, but the, the last thing I want to talk about here with Breakout Age, Ryan, is the work done over at sportsgrid.com. This comes from Anthony Emiko, and he's taken Breakout Age and identified a couple of other factors that really make it more predictive. And that is when you have a breakout as a true freshman, and if you come out as an underclassman, those two factors have led to a 73% hit rate on wide receivers drafted in the first round in the last, I think, 10 plus years. I think it was a 10 year sample size. Maybe it's 2007 to 2017. And that's 11 out of 15 first rounders drafted that had a breakout as a true freshman that came out as an underclassman were, were hits in terms of, uh, I think this is a, a fantasy evaluation, but generally if you're a good fantasy wide receiver, you're also a good real life wide receiver for the most part. So, I mean, there's something obvious there. If you break out as a true freshman in college football, you're probably pretty good. And if you come out as a true junior and you broke out as a true freshman, you're probably pretty good. But I, I did think that was an interesting data point. Wait, well, and correct me if I'm wrong. You said they were all first round selections, right? Well, looking at this subsection, looking at players that were top 100 picks that meet those criteria, it's a 63% hit rate. And if you look at just any player drafted that meets those criteria, it's a 42% hit rate. So Obviously, the, the earlier the round, the better the hit rate. But still, compared to the other group, it was 42% hit rate versus 3% hit rate in, in the all-drafted players. In the top 100, it's 63% hit rate versus 13% hit rate. And for the first rounders, it's 73 to 22. So some pretty big gaps in all of those groups. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, and if you happen to be in a circumstance where you get a freshman that hits that target share percentile. I mean, that's the number one thing that predicts this, right? To be a quote unquote breakout. You have to feel that there are underlying talents that got him to that point, right? So while it, it certainly makes sense, the uh, the group that actually fits the criteria, what it was an 11 out of 15. Um, if you do get one of those unicorns, and I think we can call them that at this point, or at least, you know, al- albino stallions of the North, I don't know. Um, grab them, right? That perfectly makes sense to me. It's predicted on players that don't quite hit one of the criteria or come out a year later or uh and then definitely shifting the, the school um 
I would be really interested to see like how far back that goes and if that is consistent, not just in the current generation of say the last 10 years. Does that go back to the Walsh area and Joe Montana? Like that would be great to really get a, a deeper version on. Yeah, taking it back into the modern era generally would be interesting. Going even back to 2000 would be interesting because the game has changed a little bit, obviously. But I mean, 10 years, it, it does seem like a significant enough sample size to me. But when you only have 15 players that meet the criteria, you start to wonder. So this year, just real quick, this year, here are the three players that meet the year one breakout age and the underclassmen declare mm. that, that I'm tracking so far. One of them is Rashad Bateman. That's why he was a prime example that I brought up. I think he goes in the first round. And this tells us that if Rashad Bateman goes in the first round, he's probably going to be pretty good. Uh, the other one is Rondale Moore for a potential first round pick. He's obviously an outlier from a height perspective. And the last one is Auburn's Seth Williams, which is not a name that I've heard nearly as much about. So if you're looking for some fantasy sleepers in your dynasty leagues, those are some guys you can look at. If you're looking for players that you want your team to draft, you can go see how they fit into these metrics at playerprofiler.com. And hey, maybe it'll give you some information when you're having water cooler talks about whoever it is that your favorite team drafts this year. That's going to do it for this episode of the Locked On NFL Podcast. Tomorrow, Chris and Q have you covered with everything that goes on in the NFL. Until next week, thanks for listening and have a good one.